and welcome to Tessa Turk's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 9th, 2015. Join us this week as we talk with Downey historian George Redfox about one of his city's gems, the oldest surviving Golden Arches-style McDonald's drive-in restaurant. We'll also talk with artist Kim Stringfellow about After the Aqueduct, a multimedia group exhibition at LACE, exploring Southern California's growth, the Owens Valley, the Los Angeles Aqueduct, and the ongoing conversation sparked by the issue of water in the West. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 9th, 2015. This week, our two guests will be George Red Fox. He's president of the Downey Conservancy, and he'll be talking about the oldest McDonald's in the world, which is in Downey, uh, at Lakewood Boulevard and Paramount. And there's some easy... We'll get into all of that. He's, he's a, we're, uh, we're, this is two for three. For George, we've got one more more, more interview in the queue and uh, about fast food in my favorite city in the world, Downey. So we're just we're 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 making our way through it. Our second guest this week will be artist Kim Stringfellow. Kim is the project organizer for an exhibit at Lace. Lace is Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions. They're in Hollywood. They originally were in a brick industrial space next door to Daily Dose, which is where we start a majority of our tours. So uh, I'm always thinking about lace because I'm always seeing the um, the stencil sign painted, into the, painted onto the brick. Um, Kim has organized a show. It's called After the Aqueduct. It's a show with um, a number of other... It's a multimedia exhibit with a number of contributors. We get, we'll get through all of them in the interview. The show opened... Uh, Mid last week and this coming Saturday, uh, the fourteenth, two p.m. There's a panel discussion about the exhibit with a number uh, with with a number of guests. John Christensen, who's been interviewed on this podcast, editor of Boom, a journal of California, will be moderating the discussion. And this is this is a great interview with Kim. She's a really together lady, and we'll get into all the th- interesting things she's doing in the Mojave Desert and and the Owens Valley. And Kim. The tip jar, please. The Pish- you are the Pishka Maven. Yes, it's true. There is a tip jar. It's associated with this podcast. It's sort of out on the virtual counter next to where you order, although it's very virtual because you don't order anything. You're already here, and 
And here it is. Take it. Here's the podcast. If you like it and you're so inclined, you can make a digital contribution to help support our enterprises as we're traveling around the Southland looking for wonderful people to talk to for you to listen to. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. Thanks so much for your support. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Kim. I say perfect a lot, don't I? It's your word. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. Amazing used to be my word, but that would be a weird thing to say. That's kind of Huel's word. Amazing? Amazing! Oh, yeah, it is. God yeah. rest his soul. Yeah. All right, Kim, um, closely watch trains. Let's let's jump into the first one. Um, Newbury Park, okay? Western, west out, out towards Thousand Oaks, off the 101. Uh, there used to be a lion farm there. Uh... Someone found a poster. Do you want to tell us about this poster by um, the artist Earl Newman? This dates from 1963. Sure. Uh, Leslie uh, Pruitt. Pruitt. As in she always knew it. Thank you, Richard. I was not stumbling over that. But Leslie Pruitt, as in she always knew it, who we know from the campaign to preserve and protect the Bob Baker Marionette Theater, uh, fell in love with this vintage poster from Jungle Land, the old lion and wild animal farm out Thousand Oaks Way. And she... Uh, managed to track down the artist, Earl Newman, and he was still around, and he had a website with a lot of his really cool beatnik-era and jazz-era posters on it, and he was open to the idea that she had of perhaps bringing this poster back, and through the magic of internet community sites on Facebook that are dedicated to particular regional history discussions, found a lot of people who wanted this really lovely, um, jazzy, brightly colored... I want, I want one. Well, it, it's got a giraffe on it. It's perfect for kids. It's got the cool Jungle Land logo, and I guess they used to sell it for a buck or two. And the nice thing is you can get a fancy copy of this poster directly from Leslie now, made brand new by the artist. It's actually a recreation because he didn't have his original um, plates to remake this. But you can get it directly from Leslie for as much as 100 bucks or as little as about 12 for a more modest copy. So anyone who would like to have a little bit of Jungle Land in their life... You can do so now and support a working artist who's been around the L.A. scene since the early 1960s, no longer in L.A., but still making L.A. art, and, um, you know, be part of this neat community of jungle land aficionados. And can you explain why we care so much about uh, the former lion farm and wild animal farm that closed in 1969? Yes, Kim. So, so the reason I want a copy of this of this poster, and I'm I'm going to order it. Um, the reason I, we care so much is is, well, Kim, you're you're obsessed with lion farms, and this this was a lion farm. Um, Jamie Kane was also obsessed with lion farms. Jamie Kane, perhaps better known to the world as James M. Kane, author of Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity, Mildred Pierce, etc., etc., etc. Kane came to Los Angeles in 31, left his position as supervising editor at The New Yorker, uh, brought out by Cecil B. DeMille to work on a screenplay for The Ten Commandments, lasted several weeks as, as, as a screenwriter attached to that project and was promptly fired, and Kane, Kane just got into the beat of, of an itinerant screenwriter, and in those those first few years in... Los Angeles. Uh, he became obsessed with lion farms too. Uh, Goebbels and and gays 
being the two, uh, this this jungle land being the same thing as, as Goebbels. Uh, Kane would weekly, maybe not weekly, but at least twice a month, would drive the family out to one of the lion farms. This was one of his favorite things to do. And so, so um, this is going somewhere. The, 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 the novella Baby in the Icebox, and yes, Kim, as you point out, the icebox is not a refrigerator, but a, an, an old-fashioned icebox with, with the ventilation. Um, Baby in the Icebox is a novella, which is the kernel for Postman Always Rings Twice. Right, Postman Always Rings Twice, 1934, seminal novel for the hard-boiled school of American letters. Change the way, it is, you're making a face at me. Change the way, change the way American literature is written. Um, the kernel for this novel is Baby in the Icebox, which comes directly out of incidents around the lion farm, out in Ventura, and the lion farm out in El Monte. So, so this is very important. You can't okay. spell noir without lion, apparently. You, you, know, you, you know, you can't spell noir without lion, Kim. I like that. Okay, so um, let's keep moving. Our friend Justin. Justin is a... He's just a con- Justin. Just his... That's right. Just the artist Justin, who is a conceptual artist. We've interviewed him on this podcast. He is in the midst of a conceptual project about public policy <laughs> and public art. And I'm happy to say I get a lot of updates on this. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say I, I give him a lot of, of feedback. I, I think it's pretty good because he's getting pretty far, which is obviously has a lot to do with the fact that he's very together. Um, but I don't, well, I, I don't well, think my good advice hurts him. Well, and also, he's actually willing to jump through these rather ridiculous civic hoops. Like, oh, I can't do that. Well, can I do this? Oh, the terminology says X, Y, Z. Well, how about W, Y, O? Okay. So the, yes. the reason we're bringing this up is Justin has put out a new petition, and I want everyone to sign it. And the petition is you sent... You didn't send it to me yet. Oh, I'm going to send it. Well, I want to sign it. Okay, Kim, I'm going to... It's important to support Justin. I'm gonna send it to you. Thanks. Okay. We've got we've got a little lag between there's a little latency between when we record and when we publish, so don't worry, it's gonna see, get see the difference between you and me is I, I like to be in the first twenty people that sign a really right on petition and you don't care where you are. No, I don't care. That's I, you're wow, you've done it. I don't I don't care where I am in this petition because I'm just gonna sign it in the next two hours before I get you all the, the URLs that need to be um, copy surrounding the URLs, so you're happy with the copy for the URLs, and you're right. I don't care. Okay, I don't care. Moving on. No, not moving on. Explaining the petition. So, so Justin put up, and it was removed, a sign that said Glassell Land out in Glassell Park, and um, he's seeking a new location. This is really complicated. Um, it in, sign, is it a is sign? It is it art? Is it, is it public art? What about the city attorney's office is being consulted because they just freed up a great deal of money, many, many millions of dollars out of the Department, the Department of Cultural Affairs Public Art Division, which is a, a fairly autonomous unit uh, that has all this money from, from they're from uh, hotels. Yeah, when de- when you build, when you develop a piece of property, one percent, the one percent for art. This is part of the one percent for art fund. So these these funds have recently become available, 
and they don't seem to match this. So he's really... Is, 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 it, is it a sign to advertise real estate in Glassell Park? This is this is a really good project. He's gonna do. An, this is gonna be a fantastic. Um, I don't know how he's going to take the narrative of the creation of public policy around the Glassell land sign and its successful uh, installation somewhere in Glassell Park on a hillside. But when he's done, it's gonna make a great. It's gonna make a great project, and I look forward to to being at the opening. And I encourage everyone to sign the petition. And, and I have an idea. If the physical sign is a no-go, what if there were a bank of fog created by machinery and then Glaselland was projected on the fog? It's, it's going to be fine, Kim. He's, he's, I, I think they're pretty close to finding a hillside. I don't, I don't want to give up the game, but I, 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 can, I think I can say just in the abstract that he's, he's making very good progress. You don't like my cloud sign? I like your cloud sign, Kim, but I, don't, I think he's just, I, I just going to get a hillside. And that's going to be okay. So okay, well then, can we can we do that to like recreate Victorian Bunker Hill on the sides of the skyscrapers? Okay, Kim. Mm. We have to we have to move on. We have one more closely watched train, and and it's it's a, it's a, it's a doozy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go. Oh, who me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Skid Row. Everyone's talking about it because of the the shooting that happened about a week and a half ago um, down in front of the Union Rescue Mission, which is of course ground zero, ground zero, ground zero even for a lot March, of March, March two, March two. Thank you, Sunday. Uh, we spent a lot of time focusing on the Union Rescue Mission at both of its more recent locations, of course, Second and Maine, where it was until the early 1990s, and then as part of the sort of concerted civic effort to push Skid Row east towards the river to move the service organizations, to move the homeless so that downtown could be redeveloped. Um, the Union Rescue Mission moved over to 5th and San Pedro, and that's where the shooting happened. And we do... It's 6th and San Pedro. Well, between 5th and 6th, yeah. thanks. We, we do a lot of historical work with their archives. We lead an annual walking tour of Skid Row history that ends on that block as we walk... Um, from City Hall through Little Tokyo and down to what is now the heart of Skid Row. And you can watch videos from the last few years on our YouTube channel. It's uh, youtube.com slash esoteric. So, you know, obviously when anything happens right there and it draws the attention of the world to the problems of Skid Row and the abiding problems of Skid Row, the Union Rescue Mission has been there over 120 years, not at that precise location, but in the Skid Row neighborhood trying to provide services to the uh, evolving community of very needy, troubled people who need need a hand, need some food, need some shelter, need some clothing. Um, well, I mean, it's pretty clear that the policies of containment, the policies of the Safer Cities Initiative, whereby police officers will come down to people who are living in tents and tell them, take your tent down, come out of your tent, it's daytime, you can't be inside your tent in the sidewalk. Um, all of this stuff provides a backdrop for enormous pressure and strife, and ultimately it resulted in the death of a man on the sidewalk in the middle of the day in front of a lot of witnesses. And the fascinating thing about the modern Skid Row, and you know, part of me wishes this was the case 50 years ago, that there had been some sort of documentary um, possibility for the people living yeah. down in Skid Row to, to, you know, recognize what was happening around them and to record it. 
I don't think that was really so much the case, although you get some writers who come out of that life. But now everyone has a smartphone. And one of the gentlemen who was on the block, within moments of the shooting, he uploaded this video to Facebook. Um, and it's a video of basically the aftermath of a confrontation between a man who's only known as Africa at this point. His identity is still in question. We've had a, a few different names have kind of been bounced around for him. So apparently some of his friends called him Sean. Maybe his name was Sean. But uh, the confrontation began. It was interesting enough that people did gather around, and this um, one gentleman happened to shoot video, put it up on his Facebook account. By the time I saw it around 3 in the afternoon on Sunday, the day of the shooting, it had 30,000 views. Uh, by the time I woke up on Monday morning, it had uh, 5 million views if I remember correctly. So, I mean, this thing really took off. It spread worldwide. And, you know, it's not just people interested in the problems of Skid Row and the problems of poverty and the failure of so many different entities to solve and cure homelessness in L.A. This has now become part of the dialogue about policing and black versus white in America and worldwide. And so... It's, it's obviously very, very upsetting. I think people down on that block are having a very hard time. There have been some confrontations with news crews. There's an incredible piece of video footage that was shot by Amos for Streetwise LA, which shows a group of people with their arms up in the air in the, in the now universally recognized hands-up-don't-shoot pose, and they're forcing a news van to back up and to leave the neighborhood because they don't want to be filmed. But... Um, what's coming out of it is a lot of very thoughtful journalism coming from many different sources, and there's been a lot of coverage in the Los Angeles Times, very thoughtful op-ed type pieces, and they're all saying the same thing. Um, the policies for handling the problems of Skid Row have failed. The policing has failed, the housing has failed, and it has to change and it has to get better. And I'm sorry someone had to die, but maybe the result is going to be that this light is being shown on a failed skid row, and some new ideas will come to the fore, and perhaps something will come out of it. I really hope that's the case. Okay, Kim, let's just step back, because that was a very good description of a, a very specific description of a very unfortunate event very recently. So, I, I so didn't even say what happened. I realize. It's upsetting. It's a little disorienting. So um, in the course of trying to arrest this gentleman, Africa, um, five or six police officers were physically confronting him, and a young officer lost control of his service weapon, or he believed he had. And he yelled something that no one can quite make out on this one video. There's other videos as well that um, obviously will need to be parsed, as well as uh, body cams on the police and testimony from various people who were there. But because he was yelling something about his gun... The other officers believed that there was an immediate threat, and this gentleman in Africa, who was lying on his stomach being tasered, unclear if the taser worked, um, with his hands flapping around behind him, was perceived to be reaching for the officer's weapon, and he was shot dead there on the street. Okay. Okay, so, so Skid Row... Homelessness and the mentally ill is is a a closely watched train for us um, for obvious reasons. Um, one of one of the one of several things that I'm just gonna wrap this up with is uh, Skid Row is adjacent to is, the Men's Central Jail is, is is adjacent to Skid Row. 
Um, there are upwards of uh, 25,000 persons incarcerated in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department's correctional facilities at any given moment. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is the largest mental health provider in the country. Um, wow! So, Every time um, you say it, I just so, get chills. So, county supervisors and the Sheriff's Department under the last sheriff really want want to move Men's Central Jail and erect a new mental health facility for the mentally ill on its site. Um, the county of Los Angeles makes a lot of money from incarcerating the mentally ill. Skid Row is exacerbated by this this sub-theme, an adjacent theme to this. Um, Containment policies, the policy of containment, um, not officially adopted by the city of Los Angeles in 1974, but but certainly um, in in spirit followed out, um, pushed intake centers east of Main Street in downtown Los Angeles into what we now call Skid Row, and containment in in spirit certainly was was something that happened, and and this containment policy coupled with um, what is happening within the Sheriff's Department in in correctional facilities and coupled with just the economic crisis this country is facing is creating a public policy nightmare. And it is in the context of all of these things I hope I've quickly gotten through that the shooting that Kim just described sits in. And it is is a, a huge problem. I've, of course, failed to mention California realignment, um, California realignment and its impact on uh, state correctional facilities and its burden on the county of Los Angeles is tremendous. Um, the Sheriff's Department of Los Angeles County is, is bearing the burden of a great deal of California realignment, and this is having a huge impact on how who is incarcerated, how people are incarcerated. Um, it gets really complicated very quickly, and it's something everyone should should try to think about because it's these are these are major vectors in in the crisis situation which is skid row and what did i say to you on saturday the day before this shooting happened while we were walking around the historic core richard i i i don't know can i forget well we were walking around the historic core and i said the west side ground we were downtown afterwards okay and i said I have never seen so many really troubled people, people who are clearly not in this world that we are walking in, yeah. on Broadway, on, on 4th Street, on 6th Street, on Spring. It seemed like Skid Row was spreading outward, and these people, I mean, they were just, it, it was like walking through Bedlam. It was like when they used to let the British upper classes visit mental hospitals in the English countryside as a tourist attraction. That's what I felt like. And I thought there are so many young people just walking around oblivious with their little doggies and looking at their phones. And they don't realize they are surrounded by people with mind-forged manacles and something is going to happen here. I was really, I, I walked away saying, I hope no one gets hurt. I think there could really be a confrontation with someone who comes over from Skid Row and is very mentally deluded, getting into it with one of the people who live over here. And that's not what ultimately ended up happening the following day, but something really big did happen, and, and the whole world is watching. And I hope, I hope, I hope it'll be a better day tomorrow. Good William Blake, 
um, reference, Kim. By the way, mind forged, mind forged manacles. Okay, Kim, we're we're done. We're 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 done with closely watched trains. We're gonna we're gonna get into upcoming events and we're gonna get through them quickly because we've got to get to our interviews um, coming up. Sunday, March fifteen is our next forensic science seminar. Um, I strongly encourage you to come. It's gonna be a great event. We are doing ballistics and homicide investigation within. Correctional facilities. Hey. What, what? Hey, that kind of fits in with everything we've been talking about. Y yes, Kim. Abs 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 uh, unfortunately, yes. Everything we've just been talking about, uh, yes, is what this forensic science seminar is about. It's a benefit. It's a benefit for the criminalistics department at Cal State Los Angeles. Uh, we work with them to put these on. Mike Kelly is a uh, ballistics investigator for the Sheriff's Department. He'll be giving the ballistics talk and an extensive sh hands-on show-and-tell. Um, Nick Guskos is the second speaker, and he'll be talking about his, his many, many years of homicide investigation within uh, correctional facilities in the Sheriff's Department. It's, uh, these are fascinating topics. Sunday, March 15th, $36.50. Please get a ticket. We'll see you there. This is a great event. Uh, two weeks later... Visionary of the Year talk for our Lava Sunday Salon. Our Lava Sunday Salon is back. Last Sunday of the month, we are at Library Bar, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, it's a free salon. Reg reservations required. Um, Nathan Marsak. Nathan Marsak, who is the Lava Visionary of the Year 2014. 2015. Oh, my God, it's 2015, Yes. He's Lava Visionary of the Year 2015. He's giving his talk on Richardsonian Romanesque in, in Los Angeles. So this is a talk about... Um, so the, the 19th century begins and ends with the mission. And in, in the context of that statement, the 19th century begins and ends with the mission. Before it ends with the mission, it goes through many iterations. Richardsonian Romanesque, Second, French Second Empire or two of them, and how we come to the mission is a really important question because it defines Southern California. And Nathan's talk about Richardsonian Romanesque in late 19th century Los Angeles will help us address and understand this path of getting to the mission as the style, as the, 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 the defining style for Southern California. So it's free. You need to make a reservation and... Um, We'll, we'll, we hope to see you there. And just very quickly, um, just because we we took her out for her birthday last week, she's such a sweetie. I love her. I love her to death. Uh, April, the April Salon, April twenty sixth, Sunday, April twenty sixth. Joan Jib Smith. Uh, Joan Jib Smith is a poet and a, and a and a writer. She she's published her memoir, Tales of an Ancient Go Go Girl. And and Joan is is I'm going to interview her about. Um, being a go-go dancer in the mid-60s. Um, she's going to talk about um, Orange County biker gangs, um, drug trafficking. Um, the Watts Riots. The Watts Riots. Um, being what, mentored by Charles Bukowski. She's going to, uh, she, Joan Job Smith, after she left the world of go-go dancing, which, which involved um, her work with the, the, the Hessian. The, the he Don't even start. Okay. Yeah. After she left the go-go world, she started hanging out with some real reprobates like Charles Bukowski. But you'll just have to come to the salon yeah. to hear all about it. Yeah. And buy a copy of her book, which she will sign for you, and then you'll 
have something to treasure forever. So these salons are back. We're super excited about them. So get get signed up, and and there we go. And oh, that's it. That's, that's it. it. That's it. We can get started talking about. We can get ready for the interviews. So no, no, I need that piece of paper. Um, I don't need that piece of paper. Okay, so. Interviews. Uh, first interviews with George. Second interviews with Kim. So I will introduce Kim first. Kim Stringfellow uh, will be our second interview. I'm interviewing her as the project organizer for the show after the Aqueduct at Lace. Lace, and this is the last time I'm going to say it. Lace stands for Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions. They're a um, art gallery in Hollywood. They moved to their current location in 1995. The CRA put them there. Um, this exhibit is about this exhibit after the aqueduct is about the Los Angeles aqueduct. Owens uh, comes stretches from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles. Uh, opened in 1913 and changed forever, shapes forever Los Angeles and its public policy. So this is an exhibit of multiple artists, multimedia about the aqueduct water, the Owens Valley, and Los Angeles going into the 21st century. It's a fantastic show. Kim does a fantastic job of walking us through it. On Saturday, March 14, at LACE, at 2 p.m., will be a panel discussion about this exhibit. John Christensen, who's been interviewed on this podcast, John Christensen is editor of Cal- of Boom, a California journal. He'll be moderating the panel. Uh, it's a great exhibit. Try and get to the panel. Kim... Springfellow has uh, a number... I'm just going to quickly toss out uh, other things she's worked on, which, of course, will be on the webpage associated with this podcast. Uh, She has a project called the Mojave Project, which is ongoing. This is a project that explores the Mojave Desert, of course. Um, Aerospace, uh, the human... uh, Just a a lot of different... uh, the, The scales of time in the Mojave scales of dis of travel in the Mojave on foot, on mule, um, military industrial complex, the the Mojave Desert as a proving ground for all different things. It's a great project. Ongoing. Check out the link. And last, the last thing I will say about Kim and work outside of this exhibit, but compl- tangential to and absolutely pertinent to, is um, a, a podcast she's done called There It Is, Take It. This is a uh, this is a 90-minute podcast for you to drive up Highway 395, and uh, you know, in, in in the Owens Valley, and listen to the podcast as you go, and it just sort of. Get, so we're gonna we're gonna do that soon, and do that. It's it's really interesting. So, she's great. It's a great interview. It's a great exhibit. Please get to it, and that will be our second interview, our first interview. There we go, George. George Red Fox is president of the Downey Historical Society. He's been on this podcast recently. He will be on again in the near future. He's really interesting. Downey is a fascinating place. And this week he's going to talk about the oldest McDonald's in America. This is the uh, one of the original franchises. As in, so, just to quickly set this up. Um, McDonald's. The McDonald's brothers um, in 1937 opened a restaurant at the uh, Monrovia Airport called the Airdrome. It's 10 cent hamburgers, five uh, nickel bottomless glass of orange juice. Okay, this did very well. At the end of World War II, uh, they decided that Route 66 was, was, was where they needed to be, but they needed to be at a 
bigger hub for Route 66. Monrovia was too small. So they moved out to Avenue E in San Bernardino. This is coming down the old alignment for Route 66 off out of the Cajon Pass. Um, and they opened up um, their first, what they call, is this McDonald's, which is no longer there. They broke everything up. This is really the first fast food restaurant. Like one window is French fries, one window is hamburgers, one window is soft drinks. Okay, and this is forty six by forty nine. They just the car hops. They're really successful, and they say to themselves, "Okay, we want to we want to get serious. We want to make a signature um, burger joint that we can franchise." That we can, we can, you know, this that we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start licensing these to other people that can open McDonald's restaurants because this is going so well. They retain an architect, um, Stanley Meston, a Fontana architect, and he designs what we all know as the arches, these these golden arches. And so, uh, fifty three, late fifty three, uh, one goes up in Phoenix, um, fifty four. This one goes up in Downey, and then the second one in Southern California goes up in Azusa. The one in Azusa uh, was torn down in 86, 85, 86, and this is, of course, Chris Nickel of LA Magazine's fame. This is his superhero moment, was his witnessing of the destruction of the McDonald's Azusa on Foothill Boulevard and at Cerritos Road. This is how he became a preservationist. So, very long, well, not too long, but important. So so this McDonald's we're going to with George, and he'll be talking about this. This was opened in 54 by um, two brothers, two, bro- uh, two brother-in-laws. They married sisters, and they became, these guys, this is interesting, they, um, they, they leased gas stations. So they had these giant tables of traffic patterns in Los Angeles County, and they were just, like, all they did all day was, like, kind of keep up on busy intersections and the best intersections to put gas stations. And they decided that um, Lakewood and, and Paramount was just a really important intersection and busy. And so they took out a franchise from the McDonald's Brothers. This is before Ray Kroc. Okay, I know, Kim, I know. But we didn't, we didn't get into this in the podcast too much. We got into other things, so I just wanted to just, okay... Got into a lot of stuff, but we we sort of we sort of went light on this, and I just want to get this on there. So they took a franchise out from the McDonald's brothers, and it's still there. George will get into the history from there, but I just wanted to make sure that was all there. And so with that, let's take it away with our interview with George at the McDonald's in Downing. George, George, I'm here with you. We're in Downey. We're at Lakewood and. Florence, thank you. Lakewood, I was going to say Paramount. We're at Lakewood and Florence. We're at the original McDonald's in Southern California. I need you to properly introduce yourself. Give us your, your titles. You are a member of, of two distinct entities in Downey that concerns itself with this history and preservation. And, and, and we'll get to that, and then we'll get to, to the work at hand, which is this beautiful fast food restaurant. Hi, my name is George Red Fox. I'm actually from the Downing Conservancy. I'm the president of that corporation, and I'm also from the Downing Historical Society. Um, I'm actually just a member there, but I've been a member for quite a few years now, and it's a great organization too. And just before we get started, uh, you, you these these 
of these entities both have events sometimes. Is there one, one or two events coming up you just want to pull people's sleeve to that they can start to look forward to? Uh, we do have, for the Downing Conservancy, it looks like we're going to be having a tour coming up in April. So we'll be looking forward to that. I don't have a date for you as of right now, but it's, it's going to be in April sometime. Uh, Downey Historical Society has monthly meetings, generally on Thursday nights, um, starting about 7.30 at Apollo Park. Perfect. Okay, so um, we're here. This is the uh, 1953 in Phoenix, this Stanley Meston design opens. That's gone. And end of 53, this opens. Go. Okay, so we're sitting here at the original McDonald's here in Downey, California, designed by Charlie Meston. Um, a great piece of California history and world history, I guess you could say. Um, I grew up right down the street from this this place, and I've it, it's a part of my history. It's a part of my 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 heart. Um, I remember cruising up the alley here right behind us and uh, I'd come down here and I'd, I'd get fries or I'd get a drink or, or whatever. I'd, I was so close I could do that as a kid and, and just with all my friends we'd, we'd come down here and hang out. Um, really uh, just um, a great piece of architecture. Uh, you can kind of just sit here and you can see it from all the corners. Um, the yellow arches they are classic as far as the french fry goes and McDonald's Corporation. They still have the original tile on the building. Everything is original, um, including, I guess you could say, including the sign out front, which goes back to 1959. And, and this is the, the Speedy, the Sir Speedy. The Sir, Sir Speedy. This is pre-Ronald McDonald. That is true. So it's pre-Ronald McDonald. There was another sign that was sat on this property also, and I do have pictures of that one, uh, but it sat not at the corner, it sat off the corner a little bit and it was one of the more traditional McDonald's signs and I believe it was erected in 53 and then they took that one down when they put up the, the sign that's here now, I think 58 or 59. Wow, wow fantastic. Um, very quickly, so this, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the 1990s the family that owned the franchise, that opened the franchise in 53, there was an earthquake there were some issues with whether they're going to reopen. Do you want to bring us up to speed on the saga of how this original McDonald's was saved? Sure, I can do that for you. So basically, and I, when there was an earthquake in, I think it was 1990 or 91, I, I'm not sure of the year, but uh, there was actually a time where we thought this McDonald's wasn't going to make it. They had closed it down. They had said that it needed earthquake uh, repair. It had earthquake damage. They said the roof was possibly, you know, maybe caving in. I'm not sure. Um, but there was reasons why they wanted to take it down. The community got together. Alan Hess came in, did some, I guess you could say, architectural stuff on it. He's, a, he's a, one of the local guys around here, Orange County, Los Angeles, as far as um, architecture and googie architecture. Um, L.A. Conservancy came in, did, did a lot of work on preserving the, the place here. And um, as a... I think I was roughly 20 years old at that time, so I remember writing something to the Downey Eagle, which was the local newspaper, and I wrote just a little clip in there, and I remember they published it, and I was like thinking, oh, that's cool, my name's in the paper with a, with a little uh, my editorial, which was I, I thought was really cool being a kid 19 or 20 years old. So, I mean, that was, that was kind of neat. Um, but as we can sit here now in the year 2015, this McDonald's is still alive and well. It looks great. They keep it up well. Um, 
still great food here at McDonald's. You get the fries, you get the, the McDonald's hamburgers, the cheeseburgers, whatever it might be. You just get some good food here, and it's it's always fun to check in on your Facebook page when you get here, too. It's kind of cool. You get lots of people that come on here and say, hey, I wish I was there. So, I mean, every time I come, I usually check in. Perfect. Um, do you, as, 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 as we wrap this up, do you want to give us just a glimpse of what of what this was like when, when, when you were growing up, just not just this McDonald's, but car culture in Downey. You know, all the, there were the Harvey's Brit. There's just there, there's a lot about cruising culture in Downey that's a big part of, of that mystique. If you could just leave us with with a glimpse of that. Okay, so Downey, let's say from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even up into the 80s. There was a lot of car culture here. In fact, there still is a lot of car culture in this area. Um, there were a lot of auto manufacturers around the area. We had, um, I think there was Ford over there in Pico Rivera. Yep. I think Southgate had Chevrolet. Yes. Uh, Gen- uh, General Motors. Motor- yeah, General Motors. Motor- okay. okay. So, yeah, there was a lot of different auto plants around here where they actually built the cars. Chrysler was you know, Chrysler might have been. Yeah, yeah. They might have been. I'm not exactly sure, but they were they were just all over the area. So you had these guys that built the cars. Then you had their kids who would rebuild the old cars, and you would have that car culture. So you had people that, that basically were interested in the car culture. You had people that knew how to build those cars. They knew how to build fast cars. And then they wanted to cruise them. So you had McDonald's here in Downey. You had Harvey's slash Johnny's Broiler. Uh, slash Bob's Big Boy now, and um, just a, a big, I guess you could say, circle of events as far as the car culture uh, goes along here in Southern California. Uh, just Downey's a big part of it. You just have a, a lot of um, the interest around here. Even to this day, you still have a lot of interest. People still cruise the McDonald's here. I see people, I see actually a lot of, um, of the little import cars and stuff around this McDonald's, which is kind of cool. And then I, I go by Harvey's, or I should say Bob's Broiler, all the time down there. And they have car cruise nights all the time. That's it's alive and well here in Downey, California. Perfect. And, and as we go, again, remind us of Downey Conservancy and Downey Historical, just so people can, can go to the webpage for this podcast and get, get involved with preservation and history down here. All right. So once again, my name is George Red Fox. I'm from the Downey Conservancy. I'm the president of that corporation. And I'm also part of the Downey Historical Society. I'm a member there. And both um, Downey Conservancy and Downey Historical Society have great programs. Be sure to check us out online, uh, the downeyconservancy.org and downeyhistoricalsociety.org. George, thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, my name is Albert Okura. I'm here in San Bernardino, California, right on Route 66. And you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Kim, Kim, I'm here with you. We're at Lace. It's in Hollywood. I'd like for you to properly introduce yourself and tell us about this exhibit, which is just about to come into the world. I'm Kim Stringfellow. I'm an artist and educator. I teach down at San Diego State University. Um, I've lived in Southern California for um, nearly 15 years now. Um, lived in Los Angeles, uh, San Diego. I now live out in Joshua Tree. 
My work deals with a lot of um, research, cultural geography, social practice. I work in a variety of media. Um, I often do very long-term projects. And I recently did a project called There It Is, Take It, which deals with the history of the Los Angeles Aqueduct, its 100-year history. And primarily it deals with the effects that um, the aqueduct had on Owens Valley, which is where the water comes from in the eastern Sierra. Perfect. Um, that was a very good introduction to who you are. Now let's get into this room, this exhibit space, and tell us about this exhibit, which is about to come into the world, which you're the project organizer for. So we're in the front room of LACE, and we're looking at a project by Lauren Bond and the Metabolic Studio, 100 Mules Walking the Los Angeles Aqueduct. And this um, commenced in 2013, um, and she's made some additions to the project, so it's through 2015 as well. So um, Lauren Bond actually worked with um, Mule... um, Oh, uh, mule skinners, is that the correct yeah, word? It is, it is. Okay. Yes, yes. Yes, so Lauren Bond worked with um, mule skinners, I forget the exact number, and she actually hired um, these various folks who are experts in their field to actually wrangle 100 mules similar to the, the, the mule power that was used to actually construct the Los Angeles Aqueduct. So they traveled from Owens Valley over, I think it was over a month's time, along the aqueduct, all the way to the Cascades, and they were able to arrive for the anniversary, actually, of when the aqueduct was first opened up at the Cascades and water was released. And that um, happened on November 11th, 1913. So they, this party arrived on November 11th, 2013, and um, it was a, quite an event, quite an event, um, a major undertaking, performative work, you know, on the level of Christo and Jean-Claude, the type of um, infrastructure, planning, of course you would have to go through multiple counties, um, Inyo County, San Bernardino, Los Angeles, just to get access to travel this route. Um, water these mules along, feed these mules, all this work that goes into this. So we're looking at the bridles from the mules that were collected and the horseshoes, which there's this kind of beautiful mobile that has been created um, with these shoes that were actually used during this journey. And then this is a um, video, and this is a continuous video as they're traveling for the entire month from the viewpoint of four different mules. And um, this will play over the course of the exhibition until April 12th. I'm I'm not sure exactly how many days this spans, but every time you come to the gallery, you're going to be able to see a a different location along the aqueduct. So you can see right now there... um, uh, It's hard for me to tell what... What I'm looking at here, I'm sure. Um, I'm not sure if we're still in Owens Valley or we're in the northern Mojave Desert, but um, it's it's definitely some kind of arid landscape in that. Yep. 
Um, and uh, as they move south, of course, you're going to start seeing more signs of urban existence moving through Lancaster and Palmdale on that. Per- so, perfect, perfect. Let's, well, let's, let's keep walk, walking and talking. Walking and, so here, here we go. In, in, we're, we're moving into the middle gallery space. So the monitor here is a showcase for Peter Bo Ratman's work, Psychohydro... I always say this wrong. Psychohydrography. Psychohydrography. It's a piece that was done in 2010, and it is this kind of meditative derive, like a situationist derive of him looking at the aqueduct from the... Um, starting point in Owens Valley, traveling along this infrastructure through the desert, coming into Los Angeles, and then he starts to focus his camera on the Los Angeles River, and the river takes us to the ocean, and then this is where the piece concludes. It's a feature piece. Um, It's very mesmerizing to actually sit and watch this entire piece. I believe it's over over an hour or so, um, and it has a, a wonderful um, the ambient soundtrack is amazing on it as well. So perfect. Okay, let's uh, keep okay. walking uh, clockwise. Yeah, I think we're walking clockwise. So we're looking at the Aqueduct Futures Project, which is. Professor Barry Lehrman at Cal Poly, he worked with students, including Jonathan Linkus, and a whole variety of students. There's um, too many that to, to actually name. But this project was done over a year and a half. It was part of a course study. Um, it was an immersive um, field experience where the students actually traveled along the aqueduct in both the Lancaster area, Palmdale, I believe, and up in Owens Valley, and did initial research, worked with communities in these areas, and then responded um, through design and landscape architecture, possible solutions for the future. And um, there's a variety of topics they're looking at. Um, Some things are designed in these kind of timelines, um, and you can see there's like this layering of time, looking at different issues in that. I've, I think the, the actual design graphics are, are quite amazing, yeah. and it's, it's great to bring in this kind of applied design, landscape architecture, into the equation with fine art in that, too, and sort of look at this aesthetically as well. So there's a lot of research and information that's part of this, and it was a collaborative project. So Great, okay. great, perfect. Um, let's, oh, the game, yes, yes. Okay. the game, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so um, attempt just, I, I, I know that this is just audio, but mm-hmm. attempt to describe what we're standing in front of okay. before you explain what it does. Okay, so, so we're standing in front of this game. Um, it's a kind of... It's, it's a game console. I think yeah. we can safely say it's a game console. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a game console. It, it's very inviting. Um, it has a bunch of joy, joysticks and colorful buttons on it that makes you want to just start plugging away on this thing, and um, there's a array of postcards and a 3D printer and screens that allow um, the audience to interact and actually to 
look at the Owens Lake, so it's very specific to the Owens Lake. The title of this project is the Rapid Landscape Prototyping Machine for the Owens Lake Dust Control Project, and it's done by Alexander Robinson and Landscape Morphologies Lab. So um, this is going to be, I think, a big hit of this show. I, I can I can tell. Can, yeah, yeah, it's going to be huge, especially because when, because I'm going to cut to the edge because at the end of your experience, you get a, a postcard, right? Right. We always like it when we get things at, at shows that we actually get to create. So it's actually going to be printing out these postcards. There's these um, frames with different um, elevation models that you can actually um, exchange for the one that we're looking at right now. And there's also project, projected imagery um, that creates this very 3D kind of look to this. So um, I think this is great. Behind it are some of the prototypes that they've created. They also work with um, almost, it's like a, what do you call those Japanese, the, the gardens where you rake yes. different shapes? The, the Zen gardens, the yeah. Zen gardens, yes. So they, they actually um, have worked with sand as well to um, use the 3D printer to create these um, different types of elevation models and that. And I believe that working with um, these kinds of manipulated elevations, this can help with dust control because these are able to sequester dust yeah. in these different shapes. And why not do something that's aesthetic? I think this is the point of this. You know, if you're going to have to, I mean, it's a, a huge lake bed. Yeah. So why not think about how artists and designers um, really um, help with these kinds of issues and these problems that we need to deal with um, in, you know, controlling the dust and so forth on Owens Lake. Great, great. Um, what's next? Uh, Nicole Antibi. Okay, perfect. Okay. So Nicole Antibi, um, she's worked on this nonfiction animation that was actually produced in 2009. Um, it is a Mulholland bestiary. Um, we actually featured this project in Arid Journal. And it's a really beautiful, poetic kind of portrait of Mulholland. Um, thinking about his larger-than-life persona. Um, she's taken a lot of sort of liberties in um, reworking his myth and that, which I think are quite wonderful, and did this beautiful presentation where there are these beautiful kind of animated drawings and that um, with this kind of storyline. And I think it's a, it's a very subtle piece. It's, it's different um, than, say, Barry Lehrman's projects, which are... Um, you know, very uh, didactic type of work in that. So I think it, it counters and brings in more of the sort of poetic story. Perfect, perfect. Okay. Let's uh, let's keep let's keep moving along. Then I'm this is talk about Chad. Yeah, I, yeah. This is this. Okay, so so we have to we have to take a breath because we're you're about to start talking about a photograph and no yes. one can see it and it's absolutely stunning. Okay. So just. Take a breath and tell us about this amazing print. Okay. So Chad Ress is a photographer. Um, he does um, a lot of commercial editorial work in that. I came across his work in Boom, a journal of California that John Christensen 
is the editor. Um, he was actually featured in a issue in 2013 that dealt with um, the Los Angeles Aqueduct as subject. And I was really taken by these um, amazing prints. He works in a digital 4x5 format, so the detail is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, they're, they're wonderful. And he's really sort of looking at how we interact with this water that comes from this area. So um, he has this image of a swimming pool, of um, you know, a public swimming pool that's outdoors and it's fed by you know, waters from Metropolitan Water District, the Los Angeles Aqueduct and that. Um, there's a large panorama um, that's part of the show and it's actually uh, the only uh, photograph from 2014. So um, his other images are from 2013 when he shot those. Uh, when, he, when we were talking about this exhibit initially, um, I suggested that perhaps he wanted to go up to South Lake in the Eastern Sierra and um, check out the fact that uh, South Lake, which is normally a full, um, beautiful Eastern Sierra um, lake, was nearly empty. I had um, been up there in 2013 and saw for myself, and I thought this would be a great subject in his technique. And um, it's great to talk with him about this because he was sort of shooed out of here by Southern California Edison, but um, he was able to get into the lake bed, so we're really sort of seeing it from within. We're seeing this kind of majestic... Um, mountainscape behind. There's a little dusting of snow. It's probably shot um, later in um, the, perhaps the afternoon, so it has this kind of beautiful warm tone. And then we're seeing this kind of rocky, desolate lake bed. And it's hard to get an idea of the scale of what you're looking at until you see this. And, and this is, I'm going to interrupt you, this, the, the way he, he create he the way he frames the scaling images is brilliant i mean you just you you can spend 15 to 30 seconds looking at this photograph before you discover the object which he's placed in here for scale yeah yeah so i'm, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you no and it, it it's great because it's it's not apparent when you first look at this but then you start to see there is a caterpillar which is the machinery of course and um it is minuscule within this. So you can see that this is a huge expanse that is devoid of water. And I think it really plays into this idea of our title after the aqueduct. This is really about thinking beyond, thinking about the future, thinking about we're in a drought, um, thinking about the fact that uh, Owens Lake now has to be rewatered. Um, they can't do as much groundwater pumping. Where, where are we going to get our water? And, and um, how can Los Angeles be self-sufficient? Um, all these things are part of this. I actually went on a tour with some um, folks from Owens Valley um, a, over a year and a half ago that Tom Benage actually had organized for um, Harry Williams, who is a Bishop Paiute tribal elder. And we came down to Los Angeles and looked at um, a lot of the water capture that they're starting to implement. Um, we looked at the Burbank, um, they're 
you know, no longer working with above-ground reservoirs. There's a lot of reasons for that, um, and they're building a new underground reservoir. Um, and there's this push to actually capture rainwater. You know, and we, you, we can have water that is pours, you know, on the city, and if this was able to be captured, it could sustain the city. It could, it could really do that. So I think we're going to start seeing, you know, Barry Lehrman, these kinds of applications, thinking about this. Um, the Arid Lands Institute is also working um, with the city on these kind of creative infrastructure in that, too. I guess Lauren Baum, the yeah. Prince. There's this alcove uh, room in Lace that is um, the exhibition space for Lauren Bonds and the Metabolic Studio Liminal Prints. And this area is um, going to house these amazing prints that were actually processed with chemistry on Owens Lake bed. So you have um, this concentration of heavy metals and all sorts of things that end up down there and um, they actually work together to create these beautiful prints, this very experimental alternative process photographic print and they're quite beautiful, very painterly in that. So they're working, um, they actually just painted this room silver and this sort of evokes the fact that Sierra Gordo is above yes. Owens Lake, and this is where the silver um, actually that built Los Angeles, you know. By, by brought in by mule train. Right, by mule trains as well. And so, you know, some of that silver in that has actually been processed down by the lake bed and sort of made its way into this. So this is symbolic of the actual element that they're working with. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, did we? Do we? Are we? We have to leave anything out? I, I think we just. I think we just have to talk about. Why. I think. Yeah, I was being polite. Yeah, oh, we, okay. we do. Yeah, we. we you, you, you've left yours for last, which yes. is good. So let's um, let's go over and yours. Yours looks good. I like this exhibit. So. Okay. Well, I, I I'm excited. Go go. Tell tell us about your tell us about your exhibit. Well. Um, so my project is There It Is, Take It, and um, it's always interesting to do a physical exhibition of something that's an audio tour. So yeah. this is actually, um, this audio tour is meant to be traveled along Highway 395 in the Eastern Sierra in, through um, Owens Valley. And it's a very, very scenic byway. It's actually amazing. Every Californian should... Um, take the trip up there and do this. So this is going to present this kind of um, alternative history through the voices of residents, activists, ranchers, um, DWP employees. And it begins at beginning of time, so we start out with um, actually Chris Placos really talks about how the aqueduct, how, how the infrastructure ties together all the way down to the Cascades. And then it goes into the voice of Alan Baycock, and he is a Big Pine tribal member, um, and he talks about the ancient um, Paiute, the irrigation systems, and how 
water was not just stolen from the ranchers, which is the story that so many people know, but actually from the Native Americans. And then we move through and various historians and that um, lawyers, Bennett Kessler, who ran Sierra Wave Media, who's actually um, unfortunately passed in January. She was a um, relentless activist, you know, really always making sure that, um, you know, the public knew what was happening. When there would be excessive groundwater pumping, they were there to report it. And um, sort of moves through time and that through these different voices. It's about an hour and a half. So there's some photographs here of some of the speakers. Um, some of these photographs will become more um, interesting to the viewer if they actually listen to the tour, which is available at thereitistakeit.org. We'll, we'll put that on the, the page associated with this okay. podcast, so don't, don't worry about running off URLs. Okay. We'll just have them all listed. And um, there's a few kind of symbolic objects that are part of this. Um, I have a copy of the Inyo LA long-term water agreement for people to right. actually um, see this and see, um, you know, what, why there are lawsuits and why this is important. I don't think a lot of people really understand, um, you know, that we have this uh, alliance with Inyo County and, um, you know, things have to be followed to protect that environment and the people who live up there. Um, I've also brought in a donation box that um, is going to, um, proceeds will go to the Owens Valley Committee as well. And it's more of a symbolic gesture of, of having people really think about where their water comes from. You did it. You did it. That was a great, that was a great walkthrough. Okay, I, I really appreciate it. So okay. uh, do you want to give us, give us the full proper title of this exhibit? And we'll just, okay. and, and, and we'll wrap this up. Okay. Um, this exhibit at LACE is called After the Aqueduct. Perfect. Kim, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. My name is Alina Skrzyszewska. I'm in uh, downtown Los Angeles. And you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for March 9th, 2015. Our guests this week were George Redfox, he's president of the Downey Conservancy, and Kim Stringfellow, she is an artist organizing a group exhibit at LACE called After the Aqueduct. Kim, we want to hear from our listeners, the good old feedback loop, as it were. Do you want to tell them how they can get into that feedback loop with us? Yeah, but... I, I kind of want to say something first, if you don't mind. I don't mind, Kim. I, I, I want to send some feedback. I want to say congratulations to you, Richard, on 100 episodes of this podcast. No, no, no. It's really your no, baby, and you, yeah, you do a lot of hard no, work. You no. track people down. You, you stitch all these interviews together. You, you edit them. You research them. You make people comfortable who think they're not ready to be interviewed, and you really bring out the best in Los Angeles. And, and I... I'm sending one out to you. I'm giving you a A plus on this podcast, Richard. I love it. I'm really proud of you. Well, thanks, Kim. I don't. I don't. It's just what I do. Um, I guess if you know you want to call out my work, I'd like to spend 15 seconds talking about 
Unix command line tools no, I use no, to no, edit no, the no. podcast. <laughs> no, 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 Just give me the mic. Okay, if you want to send us some feedback, like, for instance, you want to tell Richard you like the podcast but not enough to listen to him talk about Unix command line feeds, you can send us an email at youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com. That was very tricky, Richard. Very good way to deflect. Um, you can also go through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. You can join us on an esoteric bus adventure that is, after all, our trade. Or you can join us at one of the LAFA events that we host, as, for example, the Forensic Science Seminars at Cal State LA, like the one on March the 15th, or at the LAFA Sunday Salons. It's always a pleasure to hear from podcast listeners. And if you're finding the podcast out in the wild and uh, there's a way to share or review the podcast, if you would do so in a positive way, that would help get the word out, and we would be so grateful. Thank you. Good, Kim. Thank you. Okay, I won't. I won't talk about how I use socks to edit the podcast. Um, Thank you, Kim. We're um, we're at the part of the podcast where you you bring us home. You talk about upcoming bus tours. Um, we're going to look forward um, about six weeks. We're going to look into into mid May. So take it away. Well, I could go backwards. Should I go backwards this time? That won't help anyone. No, it won't. Uh, upcoming bus adventures. Oh, backwards? Like, do no. The, no. No. Upcoming bus adventures, of which there are a few. March the 21st, it's Pasadena Confidential with Crimebo the Clown, a bus tour about rocket science, black sex magic, presidential assassins, suicidal locales, and, of course, just all the fun you can have when you're out and about with Crimebo the Crime Clown, who's not really like a clown. He's more like a painted hobo. And he's a real dear fellow, and if you're scared of clowns, he won't touch you, I promise. Oh. Very, very fun tour. Yes. Crimebo now works for the Israeli tourist bureau. Yeah, it's great. Um... Crimebo is a Jewish crime clown, and he's got a wonderful gig now showing teenage tourists from Israel around Los Angeles. So I guess lots of moms and dads are looking over their, their kids' social media accounts of their trip to yeah, L.A. Yeah, and they're seeing pictures of them all out and about with Crimebo, with some of those really cool gun-shaped um, balloons that he makes, having an adventure. And I'm sure they have some great stories to tell. Other upcoming tours... <laughs> It makes me wish I was a teenager from my club. Other upcoming tours, uh, the debut of Hollywood with an exclamation point. It is a new crime and architecture tour, kind of a collaboration between Richard and myself, about the neighborhood that I call home, where I grew up. It's March the 28th, and I have found some doozy cases to share with you. And Richard has secured some exquisite locales for walking through. So if you want to see Hollywood in a whole new light, join us on the bus. That one is filling up. Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice is Saturday, April 11th. That's a downtown tour. No, we're not going to Skid Row. We're talking about the old downtown, the downtown that got killed when the suburbs took off and, and everybody left the historic core. But back in the middle of the century, it was a really great place to go to get into trouble, to meet a bad woman, to be a bad woman, to go and see a strip performance that would blow your socks right off your feet, and possibly to be killed by a serial killer but all in the most beautiful hotel lobbies you've ever seen in your life. That's not where all the crimes happen, but we're going to go see some of them. So that is a tour that I definitely recommend for people who'd like to see downtown L.A., the seedy side, but in good company when you're absolutely safe in our hands. On April the 18th, also nearly sold out, it's The Real Black Dahlia, our most popular crime bus tour, a tour that asks not 
who killed Beth Short, although we talk about that, but who was she and why should we care about this 22-year-old drifter who ended up dead in Limerick Park in 1947, post-war Los Angeles. Very haunting and lovely tour that I always do look forward to. At the end of April, it's another one of our new Crime Bus Tours, Echo Park Book of the Dead. Again, a little crime, a little architecture. What else is there in L.A. that we love? There's a lot of things, but these are two of our favorite things. And if you'd like to see the uh, streetcar suburbs of Echo Park, Silver Lake, and Elysian Park in a new light, that's the tour for you. We'll also be touring Sister Amy Simple McPherson's lovely house museum, the Parsonage, at the north end of Echo Park Lake. And that does contain the most beautiful bathroom in Southern California. And you can't use it, but you can look at it. On May the 2nd, it's Charles Bukowski's Los Angeles Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, a tour about finding the voice within oneself that is great, and how even at the age of 45, 50, it can be done, and you can make yourself was, a world-renowned writer. Yeah. He, was, he was 50. He was 50. He was 50. We'll be going to um, Bukowski's Old Bungalow on DeLongpre, which is now a city landmark, doing part to some work that we contributed to that preservation effort. And we'll also be going down into Crown Hill, Westlake, to some of the places where he, he drank and squandered his talent and, and got a lot of great material hanging out with Jane Cooney Baker, a real live muse. She wasn't real live for long, and in fact she was long gone by the time he got famous, but she is very much the spirit that steered his life and steers this tour. And uh, always interesting to see who comes together from the Bukowski world for that tour, because Bukowski people... They have a lot of heart, and they, they enjoy the opportunity to sort of let that bluebird show among friends. On May the 9th, it's the Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles Tour, a tour that takes us from 1920s oil business, Raymond Chandler, the executive, all the way out to the Hollywood man who has transformed himself first as a writer of pulp mysteries, then as a writer of rather well-regarded mystery fiction, and ultimately as a screenwriter, a very prominent screenwriter, didn't work on a lot of projects, couldn't get along with anyone, but darn, he did some great work. And we will follow in his footsteps and see some really lovely time capsule locations in Hollywood and downtown. And finally, bringing us up to the middle of May, we have our once-a-year Tom Waits bus adventure, which is co-hosted by me in a very small way with my longtime writing collaborating partner, David Smay, who comes down from San Francisco to bring his book, his 33 and a third series book, Swordfish from Bones, to life as we celebrate the life and the work and the creative partnerships of Tom Waits, singer-songwriter, former Angelino, and great favorite of many. Yum. He wrote some pretty good songs about hanging out in the the old Greyhound bus station at 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 uh, Sixth and Los Angeles. Great yeah, place he, to take he, a girl. Yeah. Put yeah. I see. I really, you know, I'm not a Tom Waits person, but I like that because when when I was 16, I was totally obsessed with going into the Greyhound bus station and putting quarters in and watching the television and thinking. See. Okay. So this. So. I like Tom Waits because Tom Waits could actually get girls to go on dates with him to the bus terminal. He at, was like 15 years <laughs> older than you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it, when, but when I was, so like when I was 15, I was like, God, I really wish when I learned how to drive next year, I could like take girls on dates to the Greyhound bus station and watch TV. rich girls from the West side to come with me to the Greyhound bus station yeah. and watch TV in those plastic seats that kind of stick to your butt. That sounds great. 
So that would never happen because no no, I could never find a, a, a girl to go on a date with me to do that. The but, only person who would think that would be a good date in the 1980s is someone who never had to take a Greyhound bus anywhere. So this this all led up to, to my, my graduating from high school and going out into the world and promptly being told by the assistant director that I was not allowed to date any of the female cast or crew of the film I was I was an actor in. I was I was absolutely strictly prohibited from dating them because they all thought I was trying to take them into opium dens and have them killed. Well you were taking them to really crummy neighborhoods and if any of the stars of the film or the essential crew had actually been killed, that would have cost a lot of money. So I I like Tom Waits. So Kim, thank you, and see, it's always good to get in these little these little insights into my life at the very <laughs> end of the podcast so people that listen feel like, oh my god, I just I got stuff this great insight into Richard. Poor Anna Dillon. Um, so, poor everybody. So, poor me. So I want to thank, not poor you, darling, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you, you can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skidaro, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between 